from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a COP25 postmortem, why you should have a holiday talk about the climate crisis, and in our final show for the year and the decade, you tell us what you learned in 2019. We're ringing out the old this week on 350. It's December 20th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, the last of the year. Joining me right here in Green Biz Studio in Oakland is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello, Joel. It's always so good to have you here, as they say, in the flesh. Uh, We had a a pretty nice week of uh, year-end holiday stuff here at the Green Biz team. All hands meeting, a holiday party, lots of other wrapping up kinds of things to do. Um, How's it been for you? It's been wonderful. I always love this time of year because I get a chance to sit back and strategically think about what we've got to do better in the year ahead and what we did really well. So I love taking stock. Um, I, I should probably do it more often than just the last time of the, you know, the end of the year, but uh, it's, a great, it's a great time of year and it's been a really productive week. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, it has been a productive week, and it's 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 always great. We had to, we got to celebrate the year and review what we accomplished and and all that ambitious stuff we have set out for 2020. More on that coming up. Um, but uh, I am really, I have to say, looking forward to the next two weeks of not total shutdown downtime. Although there will be some of that, but ratcheting back about three, maybe four notches, uh, just to uh, catch up with myself, with my family, with reading, with maybe a little writing. It's, it's, I actually like this time of year. I'm not going anywhere, going overnight for one night nearby, but not far. Not traveling when everybody else is, is always a a gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. I, I get to see actually Harry Connick during the holidays. I'm excited about that. Doing Cole Porter music, which is just the knees, the bee's knees, right? Um, and for me, organizing is like my form of recharging. So I'm, I'm really excited for it too. I, I always come out feeling really refreshed and, and energized. Well, so organizing what? Organizing stuff. Organizing, actually in, the, in this case, organizing coverage. We've got uh, lots of um, exciting beat adjustments that we've made for the year ahead. And, and we're going to be a lot more proactive about the way we approach stories and so forth. So I actually encourage the folks on uh, listening out there to... Get in touch with me if you have questions. Um, but we'll be sharing more of that. And you'll see you'll see the staff really coming out of the gate with um, with a new mission, really to 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 be more focused on our core topics and and having some uh, some free reign and latitude to to really find the stories that mean a lot to our readership. Okay, so that helps organizing. It could have been your desk. It could have been your computer. It could have been your life. It could have been your brain. It could have been uh, any number of things. So, but you're talking. A lot about uh, work life, and uh, that's good too. It is a good time to, as I said, ratchet back and do stuff. But let's do some stuff here with the Week in Review. So, COP, 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 COP 25. 
not a, a shining uh, moment in the history of, of the uh, UN climate summits. Uh, I wrote a piece, and we have several great pieces here this week about what happened in Madrid. And uh, the short answer is not all that much. Uh, it was um, kind of a, a failure, I think. Uh, I call it an epic fail, so maybe that's not too strong of a word, a failure. That a lot of uh, the things that were hoped for, just which are themselves kind of mechanical mechanisms that need to be implemented to carry out the 2015 Paris Agreement, didn't even get worked out. So we had a couple pieces about that, one by Diana Anderson, about specifically the carbon market uh, mechanism. I think that was Article 6, which addresses how countries can reduce their emissions during uh, in, in international carbon markets. But there was also Article 8, which focused on the loss and damage that underdeveloped countries uh, endure as a result of the climate crisis and severe weather and flooding and all of that and how those nations will be compensated. You know, those things are important things. They're, they're, they're not going to reverse uh, the climate change anytime soon, but these are parts of the, of the big puzzle that need to be implemented in order to get us where we want to go, and they didn't get anywhere. Uh, they got a little bit, uh, but pretty much kicked the can down the, down the road. So that's kind of disappointing, and, uh, you know, nobody goes into these COP conferences with high expectations that dramatic change is going to happen. Uh, in fact, it's sort of nervous optimism that maybe there will be an agreement uh, of, on something. And um, it, it feels that the process is kind of broken. What do you think? So, yeah, I mean, the, the carbon markets issue is something they were supposed to solve last year, I think, right? And the fact that they couldn't get it done two years in a row. And actually, the the meetings were extended by a couple days, right? So just very frustrating. And the, the the optimism, though, if you want to if you want to try to look at the the, the silver lining in please do. <laughs> um, there was uh, of course a, a big presence by U.S. business in in Madrid, and some some pretty cool reports that came out. The Bloomberg Philanthropies released a report called "Accelerating America's Pledge." So they they're trying to to show and demonstrate the leadership of the cities and 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 uh, the the companies that are they're pledging and, and staying behind the Paris Agreement. So, you know, they're showing the good that's happening. And so a lot of the companies there are tr that were not necessarily from the fossil fuels, we'll get to that in a moment because you, you, you talk about that a little bit. Um, but progress is being made at the, the subnational level. And so that was a, a bright spot. And I don't know, I haven't quite in my mind decided whether I like the fact that all the fossil fuels company companies are really heavily active now at these events, or whether I I get frightened because they're the ones helping kind of derail the progress. Um, I I can't decide. Maybe maybe a bit of both. They absolutely need to be at the table, but I kind of wonder about the the motivation. Yeah, I, I'm not as optimistic optimistic as you are about that because uh, I think what they're there for is largely to slow down the progress and subvert. Uh, any radical changes um, that would certainly any any changes that would interfere with their ability to continue to sell oil and gas um, at infinitum, and so I I'm not as 
clear that they're there for benevolent reasons or to make sure that we have the most solid and workable arrangement. I think it's there to kind of thwart progress, which is in, uh, largely what seems to have happened. A lot of the big industrial countries or emerging, you know, China and India, Brazil, and the United States that were the biggest blocks to progress uh, are ones that have huge uh, oil and gas industries and, and huge oil and gas lobbies. Yeah, I do think they need to be there, though. So I, I don't know. That's why I'm a little conflicted. I totally agree with you. I mean, what you saw in, in Madrid was a lot of delay tactics by the U.S. government and by by the, that industry as well. Um, you know, there's a, there was another kind of thread along the way. I mean, I'm a, being the geek that I am, I was in, encouraged by a story by our, one of our contributors, Ben Saltoff. He's with Yale. Um, and he wrote also about uh, digital innovations that are being uh, explored and piloted to help countries and others report their progress more uh, you know, more tact, more regularly, first of all, and, and more specifically. So that was kind of a, I mean, because a lot of the the delay tactics, say, oh, we don't know how to report this, and how are you counting this, and what who's what really counts, and what are we using? Are we all talking the same language? And so there was some movement on that front um, with how do you report this stuff. So I'm going to smile, kind of half heartedly, but I'm going to smile. Yeah, and that conversation, a, a version of that that took place has been wrote about. Uh, in Madrid at COP25. A different version of that is we had this uh, webcast this past week on the ESG, which is also about environmental, social, and governance data reporting by companies and and how that conversation between companies and institutional investors that are leaning into ESG more. And then, of course, the ratings organizations um, that are scoring these companies and doing it extremely inconsistently, at least from organization to organization, they, they may score all the companies similarly, but the MSCI versus uh, Sustainalytics, the two big ratings agencies, um, are, are vastly different in how they report things, um, and it, it's a problem. And so, yeah, this whole thing about uh, accounting, reporting, transparency, and then the, the the mechanisms for doing that, whether electronic or or not, is is just a big part of the sustainability challenge and sustainability profession, really. One final note on that, and I, it's not really. COP25 related, but it, it does relate to, to something that, that's holding people back. And, and the one big theme at COP25 was the fact that countries don't want to pay for this, right? The U.S. is trying to get out of its responsibility to pay for the damage to other countries that it might have caused by its inaction. And I was really encouraged by the release of a new tax reporting and disclosures standard uh, as part of the global reporting initiative. Um, and I think that that's going to become a, a, a meme that we should look at closely because, you know, to go back to the companies for a moment, we have a lot of really strong leaders and so forth in, that are doing good things um, with their climate policies. But at the same time, they're, you know, getting out of paying their share, their share of the taxes, and and so I think when when companies have to disclose, you know, how much corporate tax they're paying in different jurisdictions, I think that's going to be a sign of how much they're really supporting what the governments there can do uh, to address climate change. So I think that's going to be something that, that we should watch closely. And we will. And moving right along, see what I did there. We're talking about ten transportation trends to watch in 2028. Oh, you're good. Uh, I try. And <laughs> a great piece by our senior writer and analyst in transportation, Katie Fehrenbacher. Um, what are some of the trends that 
you uh, particularly liked here, Heather? Okay, so um, one that I think is fun uh, that I actually don't relate to because I don't use a scooter, but um, her one of her trends is she's looking at is scooters become boring, e-scooters and, and micro-mobility becomes boring. And, and the reason that she thinks it's going to become boring is because it's going to become so mainstream. So that we're going to ha- stop hearing people fight over the, the, the city laws and so forth, that we're going to just see these things come, you know, going into... Into, onto the roads in, in cities and, and elsewhere. Another thing that I've been following that I would love to see more of is the utility companies being more proactive on electric vehicle charging services because I, it, there is such a, an integration and a convergence of what needs to happen there between the electric grid and the resources to charge whatever they are, scooters, cars, delivery vans, and so forth um, that, are, that are electric. So those are two of the, the 10 trends um, what about you? Anything in particular? Well, she talks about the larger vehicles. So, for example, and particularly buses, and we, we've talked a bunch about the um, semis and that Tesla and others are coming out with. But um, uh, two of the trends have to do with, with shuttle buses. Uh, one is that, that the tech companies have these buses, that certainly here in the Bay Area and in Seattle and some other areas where they're shuttling uh, their employees back and forth and uh, getting them out of traffic and giving them more productive time. Uh, and those buses have been controversial, and I'm sure most of our listeners have know about that and uh, the adding congestion and protests and all kinds of things, although that's calmed down a bunch. But now those buses are at least going electric, and, and that will be one development. And similarly, with uh, uh, electric buses for school, school buses are, will be, she calls it the great big hope for the market called vehicle to grid, V to G, because uh, electric school buses have very large battery packs and only use a small portion of the uh, of the day and, and only for about half the year they make a great application for a utility to use the the batteries as as backup storage to adjust uh, account for different variations in in the grid demand um, and so she thinks that's going to be a, a big uh, part of the mix in in some places and already in Virginia the utility there Dominion announced that they're going to deploy about a thousand electric school buses on Virginia roads over the next five years and will be deployed in locations that can provide the best vehicle to grid services for the utility so that that's pretty exciting read the story yeah, there's, uh, there's about six or seven or eight more of those. So we'll go on from there and talk about some other things. And what we'll talk about is talking about <laughs> the climate crisis at your holiday party. And it's like, what? Why would I want to do that? And Phil Berry, an old friend of mine, he used to uh, be uh, at, at Nike for, for many, many years in the sustainability side. And for the last, uh, I don't know, 15 or so, he's been uh, been working in sustainable supply chains uh, in Asia for a lot of the big footwear and apparel and I think some other companies as well. And uh, he, he wrote this really fun and provocative piece. It's called A Holiday Talk About the Climate Crisis. Yes, please. And and about not just why we should talk about climate at our family gatherings, but how to. And uh, mm-hmm. and and just uh, it's you know more power to anybody who goes home and talks about this and and actually changes minds because I think that's tough in this highly entrenched world we're living in right now. But I I do think it's it's healthy to have those conversations. Yeah, I do too. I I. I get very flummoxed by this myself because I have a lot of deniers in my own family, which continually baffles me. But um, 
what I for what I've been really learning over the past few months is that I can't talk about this with as much passion as I want to. I have to be more um, facts driven, even though you know there's so many myths out there, and, and I think that was that's one of the really thoughtful things about this piece is that Phil gives you you know, some ways to, to sort of counteract the myths, you know, like it's really cold outside. And, you know, how do you talk about that? And because I don't always know how to talk about things. I, I, I find myself underprepared for some of the arguments and I, and I don't like just spouting off things without having the right data. So I feel like what this told me was like, Heather, you know what, get your, get your facts straight make sure you can talk about this, have it, have them at the ready. It's, and, and so I, I like the piece because, it gave me some ammo for my own table. Yeah, exactly. Then, and ammo is the right word here, I guess. But the, there are twelve different myths uh, or common objections that people have, and like as you said, it's cold outside. So how can there be uh, global warming? Yeah, or that we won't be able to eat burgers, or that uh, you know it's not caused by humans, or the climate has always changed, and, and and how to address some of those things. And while we're on this topic of discussions, I want to do a callback to a, one of my favorite pieces that we ran actually two years ago exactly um, by uh, Jamie Beck Alexander, who's now a senior manager of corporate partnerships at Ceres called My Dad's a Conservative Naturalist, I'm an Environmental Hypocrite. And the premise here was she was about to go home for, uh, or she did go home for Thanksgiving um, uh, a couple years ago in, in Pennsylvania. She lives um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And she was going to see uh, her parents and her dad in particular, who is, uh, uh, she calls him a true salt of the earth person who worked in feed mills on farms and steel foundries. And he's never lived very far from their rural home in Pennsylvania. And he's a staunch conservative and climate denier and all of that. And she is the environmentalist who also happens to live in concrete cities and flies all over the world. Who's the real environmentalist here? And um, and so she went home and had this conversation, and it was it was quite lovely. I know uh, uh, she and her her father uh, ended up doing a, a, at least a, some other podcast and having these conversations. And uh, he ultimately really appreciated the fact that she sort of owned up to her, her own sort of not ambivalence, but her own. Uh, Hypocrisy, I guess she called it. So it's a great piece, and we'll uh, we'll we'll link to that as well. Yeah, and that, I think that maybe that's the way we end this is that we have to listen to each other. I mean, I and that's the other thing that I need to do better is listen to what the concern is and and understand how to address it and and help them know what should should be a concern and what's not a concern. Well, we know what's on your New Year's resolutions and <laughs> probably mine as well. So uh, we'll leave it at that. Okay, now it's time for us to stop talking and you to start talking. Uh, we have over the last couple of weeks asked some of our listeners to share their thoughts about a couple of issues, and um, we're going to be featuring these responses in this this podcast as well as the first podcast of 2020. And today's question is, what was the most important lesson you learned professionally in 2019? Please enjoy, and I hope these spark some some thoughts of your own. Hello, my name is Trissa Thompson, and I'm a board advisor for Pledgling, Inc., a technology company with social impact purpose. What I learned in 2019, the most important lesson, was that there is a surprising appetite from corporate boards to learn more about the E in ESG. 
First, on my own and without any corporate sponsorship dollars, I requested that I be a keynote speaker at the National Association of Corporate Directors annual summit. My topic was environmental risk, reputation, and reward. I obtained the speaking spot. It was short, but nevertheless, I was on the main stage where 2,000 corporate board members heard my speech. Following the discussion, many, many corporate board members expressed strong interest in learning more about the E and ESG. It was very heartening to know that this topic is gaining traction at the top. Hi, my name is Keith Adekorn, and I am the VP of Sustainability for Locust Agricultural Solutions. The most important thing I learned this past year professionally can be summed up by the quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful and committed people can change the world because it is the only thing that ever has. Working for a startup and seeing the ideas and visions of myself and colleagues turn into reality as we continue to grow our thriving business has taught me how impactful it is to be part of a team who is passionate about making a difference in the world. For 2020, I want to not only build on our success of the past year, but also continue to lead the charge about how regenerative agricultural practices that put carbon back into the soil are important for mitigating climate change, improving food security, and strengthening supply chains for businesses. I believe as a certified B Corp, we owe it to the planet and our employees to take a leadership role on using our platform to make a difference in the fight against climate change. Hi, everyone. Love the show. My name is Celeste Poppets. I'll be graduating in May with an MBA specializing in social impact and marketing from Boston University's Questrom School of Business. As my job search starts to ramp up, I've been thinking more about what a guest speaker mentioned in one of my lectures this year. She mentioned that as we start looking into jobs in the sustainability sector, there are four main routes one could take. One route is getting a quote-unquote traditional role at a sustainable company, something like a digital marketing analyst at a solar panel company. Another route is getting into a sustainable role at a regular company, like being the director of sustainability at Nike. Of course, one could also do a sustainable role at a sustainable company, something like being the director of sustainability at Allbirds, but what we don't think about often is that even in a traditional role at a traditional company, we can still make a positive impact for the environment's sake. This would be something like a supply chain or sourcing role for a national supermarket. The point is we can all make an impact and we shouldn't let our professional titles limit us in taking on sustainable projects. So that's what I learned this year. Happy New Year, everyone. Hi, I'm Andrew Green, and I lead the Environmental Sustainability Office at Capital One. The most important lesson I learned professionally in 2019 was that decision makers want to hear our sustainability stories, especially on why our commitments on renewable energy and carbon reduction matter to our business, our associates, investors, and customers. The conversation around climate change is moving quickly. Seizing opportunities to share your climate journey can create opportunities to influence strategy and policy. Hi, I'm Will Sarney, founder and CEO of Water Foundry. We work with U.S. and non-U.S. multinationals on corporate water strategies and also with innovative water technology companies. What I've learned in 2019 professionally 
uh, falls into three categories. One is that water stewardship is stalled because it's an incomplete value proposition for corporations. And what we need to do is push for a more comprehensive and value-added water strategy. The second is that if we are going to, in fact, solve water, we need to change how we talk about our water challenges and move away from using words like the drought in day zero and really get to the heart of the issue and be crystal clear. And then finally, it has to do with innovation and absolutely believe that we need to bring more outsiders into our profession and uh, gain from their expertise to develop innovative technologies, business models, and uh, funding and financing opportunities. Hi, I'm Peter Kelly Detweiler, Principal of Northbridge Energy Partners and a contributor for Forbes.com. The most important lesson I learned professionally this year is the one I learn and seem to forget every year. There are actually two. The first is don't take everything personally. And if you do get irritated by something or someone, let your thoughts and reactions sit for 24 hours before you decide to take action and write that email or pick up the phone. These days, it seems we are all too willing to ascribe the worst intentions to each other. My second lesson, be kind. You'll be amazed how that simple approach comes back to you professionally in spades. And thank you to everyone who contributed. And we still have one more opportunity in our January 10th, 2020 show. We're going to look ahead and ask you to tell us What's your biggest professional ambition for 2020? If you want to submit your thoughts, just introduce yourself, as everybody just did, into a voice recorder or a device of your choosing, and uh, keep it down to about a minute or 90 seconds, and email it to 350 at greenbiz.com. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find links about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this time around. And while you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five newsletters in all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. As we said, Green Biz 350 will be off for the next two weeks. That means Heather and I will be back on January 10th, 2020. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Have a great, safe, and joyous holiday season. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in.